Before we get started, I'd like to take a few minutes to discuss some of the recent developments at the Palmyra site in Syria. For those of you who aren't familiar with Palmyra, it was once a Roman client state, but it eventually grew to rival the empire itself. It sat at an important crossroads in Syria between the Greek and Roman world and the Persian Empire to the east. Because of this, we see a unique style of architecture that combines the elements of both worlds and, until recently, a site that had been relatively well-preserved. For more on the city and its importance in the ancient world, please look at the article for Reuters by Mike Duncan. He's the host of the History of Rome podcast as well as the Revolutions podcast. As many of you know, ISIS took control of this important archaeological site back in May, and since then, the city's ruins have been under constant threat of destruction. Just this Sunday, we received reports that the Temple of Baal Shamin was filled with explosives and detonated, destroying the ancient temple. A week earlier to this revelation, the world awoke to find that the former archaeologist in charge of the site, Khalid al-Assad, had been beheaded in a public square for refusing to reveal where many of these artifacts from Palmyra were hidden. This is not just an assault on a few abandoned buildings, but rather the systematic destruction of an entire culture and history. When groups like ISIS destroy a culture's art and artifacts, they wipe that culture from the memory of the world. It's as though they never existed. Hitler understood this, as did Stalin, and every other authoritarian regime in history. In the wasteland of this cultural destruction, these regimes plant their own warped ideologies and altered histories. We're losing a lot more than a few buildings with the destruction of Palmyra. We're losing part of our cultural heritage something that makes us who we are. If you're interested in learning more about the efforts to preserve some of these sites, please consider visiting the UNESCO site, which has information on Palmyra as well as several other archaeological sites that are threatened in war-torn areas. Also, you might consider donating to groups like the Monuments Men Foundation, and you can visit them at monumentsmenfoundation.org forward slash contribute if you'd like to donate. In addition to tracking down art looted by the Nazis during World War II, they also support efforts to preserve art and artifacts in war-torn areas like Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria. Please visit their website to donate or for more information on how to become involved in this effort. Hello, and welcome to the Renaissance, Episode 8, Piero della Francesca. Thank you for being patient with me last week. I was able to get quite a bit of work done. Uh, I did spend a little bit longer on research than I had planned, but thankfully I did get some painting done. I finished one large painting for the show coming up in October. And for those of you who aren't aware, I got a show in Palacta, Florida of my artwork, all based on the Bartram Trail. And this is going to be held in conjunction with the Bartram Trail Conference, where I'm also a speaker. If you'd like more information about the upcoming show and some of my personal work, 
please visit dennisburg.com and you can find everything you need there. In addition to painting, I was also able to get some work done on the website. So check that out. I've updated both the renaissancepodcast.com page as well as dennisburg.com, which is where I keep most of my artwork. I also found that I needed the extra time to do more research on this artist. So Piero della Francesca is an artist I'm not quite as familiar with, and he, he sort of gets a small bit in the art history books. I'll be honest, I had no idea what I was getting myself into with this particular artist, and often when I'm researching for a podcast, I have a pretty good idea of the direction I plan to take it, and it presents a linear progression as much as possible. But in this case, I ran across someone so unexpected, and yet so important to the development of the Renaissance, I had to delve into his history a little bit deeper. Now, I was familiar with the name of Piero della Francesca from art school, but I'll admit I knew very little about him. In fact, if you read Fasari, it's only a very small section of his book, and he presents a vague character sketch of the artist. So initially, I wrestled with the idea of whether I should include him as a standalone podcast, or maybe not even include him at all. But part of my goal with the podcast is to highlight some of the lesser known, but very influential artists of the Renaissance. At the same time, I want them to be relevant, and quite frankly, I just don't want to bore you guys with a long list of minor early Renaissance artists. So I decided to give Piero a chance and just do a little bit more research and see what I could find. Hopefully enough for a 20 to 30 minute podcast. What I did not expect was the level of influence and this interesting story that surrounded the artist Piero della Francesca. Nor did I expect this interesting story about his rediscovery in the 19th century. And honestly, I could probably do a whole podcast just on that. We're only going to briefly touch on his rediscovery. So for an artist like Piero, who's pretty much been overshadowed by the likes of Michelangelo and Raphael, we might assume that he's a minor master, one of these many early Renaissance artists that did not come down through the ages like Brunelleschi or Ghiberti. But yet, he was a very important figure in the arts, as well as the sciences, In fact, we probably have more writings from him than any other early Renaissance figure, but most of these are mathematical works, and they offer few details into his personal life. He was actually well-known as a mathematician during his own day, and wrote several groundbreaking works on geometry. Had it not been for two men, Gaetano Milanesi, and I'm probably butchering that name, who was an Italian linguist and nationalist, and another, John Charles Robinson, an English aristocrat and amateur art collector. Piero della Francesca might have remained in relative obscurity even today. In fact, until the 19th century, he was pretty much an unknown artist, and it was the work of these two men in the 1850s that really brought him to our attention. Piero was born in San Sepulcro sometime around 1415. Now, San Sepulcro was tied politically to Siena, and this will affect the artistic growth in the city, so rather than being influenced by the ideas coming from Florence, San Sepulcro was influenced by the ideas of Siena, which was still deep in the Byzantine style. The city itself was named after the Holy Sepulcher by two pilgrims who supposedly brought back a stone from the Holy Sepulcher in the Holy Land. The city itself was essentially owned by the Malatesta family. This was a family of condottieri. These are the mercenaries you find throughout Italy. If you remember, we talked about Sir John Hawkwood in the episode on Paolo and Cello. Piero, like many of his contemporaries, grew up in a time of great strife in Tuscany, and the various cities and city-states were constantly at war with one another, particularly Siena and Florence. 
Often you find a sea of changing alliances. At times they are fighting each other. Maybe they're fighting the Pope. And in the next conflict, they become allies once again. As far as Piero's training, we know very little about his early years as an artist, though we do know a little bit about his personal life, mainly drawn from the work of Fasari. His father was a merchant, and he likely did not receive a formal education like that of Donatello, but it's probable that he learned mathematics at one of the early academies that were developing all around the city, and these were designed to serve the merchant class who could not afford a more formal humanist education. Artistically, we have no idea who he apprenticed under. Probably, he was influenced by the Byzantine style, which was so prevalent in the city, given its ties to Siena. Even though we have very little information about his early years and his training, we do have some receipts that tie Francesca to the work on the frescoes in the Hospital of Santa Maria Nuova in Florence. And it's likely that it's here that he becomes interested in perspective, as well as the techniques of Masaccio. Once he was in Florence at this time, he would have access to Brunelleschi, Donatello, Masaccio, Paolo Uccello, Fra Angelico, and we see the influence of these artists in his work and the development of his work. Probably what Piero is most well known for, at least after the Renaissance, were the mathematical works that he completed. He had studied Euclid extensively, and he applied these geometric principles to art. In fact, he reduced painting down to geometric principles. Now, for some artists, this can lead to a stiffness, like we saw in Paolo Uccello, but we don't see this with Francesca. It seems to work for him. He writes a work entitled On Perspective, and his purpose is to demonstrate the power of lines and angles. Piero actually divides paintings into three parts, perspective, composition, and color. And of course, his work on perspective focuses just on this one portion. He addressed the work to painters and academics who felt that too much perspective would leave a work dry and cold. Even Michelangelo remarks on this in the High Renaissance, that it's not necessary to know the mathematical intricacies of geometric perspective in order to achieve the illusion of depth. Quoting from On Perspective, Piero states, Many painters are against perspective. Therefore, it seems to me that I ought to show how necessary this science is to painting. And much of his theories are drawn directly from Euclid's work, entitled On Optics. Unfortunately, Piero's work was so complex and tedious that it appealed mainly to a small humanist sect of mathematicians rather than the daily working artist. What we see with Piero is that he was able to combine all these ideas of the Renaissance and fully break with the Gothic style. This is something that Ghiberti and Fra Angelico were even unable to do. He combined the naturalism of Masaccio as well as the perspective of Masaccio and Paolo Uccello. This makes him the first true Renaissance painter, the first one to bring all these ideas together into one work. In fact, many consider him the author of what we think of as the Renaissance style, and his work represents the first time all these ideas are fully adopted. Looking at the Baptism of Christ, completed in 1445 in Egg Tempera, we see this break most clearly. In the Baptism, the figure of Christ is being baptized by John the Baptist. The hand of John the Baptist forms an arc over Jesus, drawing attention to the figure of Christ. The vertical tree on the left mirrors the figure of John the Baptist, and its arching branches complete the arch over Christ's head. The mountain in the background forms an upside-down arch, mirroring what we see with the hand of John the Baptist in the tree. What this does is draw the attention 
directly to the face of Christ, almost separating it from the rest of the painting. Now, one of the things we notice if we look at the background of this particular painting is that it's inspired by the landscape of San Sepulcro. In fact, Piero would have close ties to San Sepulcro for most of his life, even though he traveled widely throughout Italy. Another innovation we see in his work are the lighter colors. These lighter colors give a more natural appearance. In fact, this particular painting has a feeling of early morning in the mountains. Additionally, the natural color that he uses gives the figures a solidity that we haven't seen since Masaccio, but it's even more realistic. They have the appearance of translucent skin. This painting forms an important part of the collection of Piero's work that made it to Britain in the 1850s. There are only a handful of paintings worldwide by Piero della Francesca, and quite a few of them are actually in Britain. We'll discuss this in further detail towards the end of the podcast, but this particular painting was nearly discarded by the church who owned it as it was remodeled in the 1850s, and we can thank John Charles Robinson for it being taken back to England. The next painting I'd like to look at is The History of the True Cross. Now, this is one of Piero's largest works. It was completed in fresco in 1447, though it may be contemporary to The Baptism of Christ or just after. It's difficult to date many of his works because there's a lack of evidence about their completion. Very little documentation exists, and his style and the paintings that remain seem fairly constant throughout his life. The painting was commissioned by the Bacci family for the Basilica of San Francesco in Arezzo. The history of the True Cross, also known as the Legend of the True Cross, is based on a medieval story cycle that traces the wood of the cross to a tree from the Garden of Eden, therefore linking Christ, the new Adam, directly to the original Adam. The fresco cycle begins with the death of Adam, followed by the story of the Queen of Sheba, the exaltation of the cross, the dream of Constantine, the discovery and proof of the cross, and finally the Annunciation. Here again, Piero demonstrates his skill with perspective. Now, we didn't see this as much with the baptism of Christ because of the aerial perspective used, so you don't really see a lot of linear perspective, but in the history of the true cross, we see linear perspective combined with this naturalistic color. His drawing ability, as well as his use of color, create the most realistically painted figures we've seen since Masaccio, maybe even more so than Masaccio. Looking at the image of the adoration of the wood and the meeting of Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, we see the most realistic use of space since Masaccio, but he carries it even further. His figures are carefully placed in the space and in accurate proportion. We also see his attention to the modeling of the figures and the draping of fabric. They have a solidity to them that heightens the realism of this piece. Again, his color is such a huge step forward, and we see much more natural color than we've seen in any of the painters previously. Piero della Francesca is truly the heir of Masaccio, whereas with Paolo Uccello and Fra Angelico, we, see, we still see links to the Gothic style. Now, perhaps if Masaccio had lived, we might have seen him develop this color as well, but I think it's interesting to compare the warm tones of Masaccio versus the cooler, more natural light of Piero della Francesca. One of Piero della Francesca's most important works is The Resurrection. This was also completed in fresco sometime between 1443 and 1445, and is painted in the Palazzo della Residenza in San Sepolcro. Today, this houses the town's main art museum. This painting has particular significance for the town, as it alludes to the Holy Sepulchre, 
which is where the town gets its name. In fact, it's such a source of pride for Piero's hometown that this image of Christ is also on the town's coat of arms. This fresco presents Christ risen and stepping onto a sarcophagus while the Roman soldiers are paralyzed with sleep. Here again, we see linear perspective, but we also see Piero's use of aerial perspective. The background is lighter and it's less colorful than the figures in the foreground, pushing it to the distance. There's a legend that Piero actually painted himself into this particular work, and supposedly he's the guard in the brown armor to the left of the painting. There's no way to confirm this, and it's just a legend, but it's one that's been repeated by Vasari and most art historians since. Now, this painting has a very interesting connection to World War II. In fact, it was almost destroyed, and it was only spared when Tony Clark, an artilleryman, disobeyed orders and refused to fire on the city. According to his diaries, he was horrified by the destruction of Monte Cassino. As it turned out, the Germans had already retreated from the city, so firing upon it would have been unnecessary. When word of this got out, Tony Clark was hailed a hero within the town. Now, let's move on to the Montefeltro altarpiece. This one's also known as the Brera Madonna, and it was completed sometime between 1472 and 1474. Unlike the previous painting we discussed, which was in fresco, this one's painted in tempera, or egg tempera, and the egg yolk is used as the binder for the pigment. Generally, these would be on panels, and they would be movable, so more like what we're familiar with today, as opposed to fresco, which becomes an integral part of the wall once it dries. This particular work was commissioned by the Duke of Urbino, and it's possible that it was meant to celebrate the birth of his son, and some art historians have speculated that the model for Mary was the Duke's wife, Baptista Sforza. On the right, you see the Duke kneeling in his armor before the Madonna and Child, and they are all surrounded by the saints and angels. Behind this crowd is a realistically painted apse in the Renaissance style, as though you were in a church chapel. This particular piece highlights Piero's skill with perspective. In fact, he creates a receding space that's so realistic you can even see the distortion of the rosettes and the coffers and the round forms as they become ellipses. He was so careful with his use of perspective that it's even possible to calculate the depth of the apse. When the painting was first rediscovered in Brera in the late 19th century, it was so obscured by a coat of varnish that it darkened to the point that it was almost unrecognizable. Many had attributed the varnish to a student of Piero's, Fra Carnivale. However, what they did not know at the time was that Piero was experimenting with oil already at this point in his career. It's now believed that the varnish could have actually been applied by Piero himself as part of these experimentations with oil. So this brings us to the next important contribution of Piero and why he's such an important figure for the Renaissance. In fact, this is something he doesn't really get enough credit for. He brought oil painting to Italy. Well, maybe that's not exactly correct, but he's the first Italian artist that we know of to use oil painting, and to popularize its use in Italy. When we get to the Northern Renaissance, we're going to cover some of this in more detail. But to briefly give you a history of the development of oil painting, it developed in Flanders, which is modern-day Belgium, and the Netherlands. Mainly this was because fresco was unsuitable for the climate in Northern Europe. The work of Roger van der Weyden was exported to Italy, and Piero was introduced to this work while he was in Rome, or possibly in Venice. 
And it's in Venice where oil painting really takes hold, and we see it evolve into an Italian art form and becomes the primary medium of artists after the Renaissance. Piero read about the developments in Northern art, as well as seeing their effects firsthand, and very soon after he was experimenting with oil paint. At first he used glazes, which are transparent coats of paint, over egg tempera, and this is how oil painting originally developed in Flanders. It was seen as a supplement, or a way to give greater depth to their egg tempera paintings. But eventually he began completing entire paintings in oil, using a brown undertone in the Flemish style. Oil paint has several advantages over egg tempera and fresco. One is that its drying time is much slower, but it can be modified with the use of mediums. It's also possible to use a series of glazes to create deep transparent shadows, but you can also paint with it very opaquely. So it gives much more flexibility than egg tempera and fresco, which have very limited techniques. The flagellation is a great example of Piero's work in oil. This particular piece was painted first in tempera, and then he completed it using oil sometime between 1455 and 1460, though I have seen some later dates for this piece. It's quite an unusual work of art. We see the use of perspective quite vividly, and we see his naturalistic lighter colors. But what makes it unusual is that the main action, the flagellation, or the torturing of Christ, is far off in the distance. Piero uses perspective to create this extreme depth and places Christ well within the picture and far from the viewer. We are placed with the spectators in the lower right, looking on but not acting and preventing this atrocity. There's a lot of debate concerned around the identity of these three individuals. Some have interpreted them as the Duke of Urbino and two of his advisors. The Duke would be the man in the center, and he's flanked by two men, two advisors, who would later murder the Duke. Piero is equating this portrayal to the passion narrative of Christ, who is betrayed by Judas and handed over to the authorities for torture and execution. This particular interpretation is still hotly debated, though it is the favorite story for those in Urbino. According to Vasari, Piero went blind and was unable to paint for the last few decades of his life. His reputation waned, along with the influence of his city. After his death, he was overshadowed by Raphael, Michelangelo, and Donatello. Pope Julius would commission Raphael to paint over Piero's work in the Vatican. Despite all of this, Vasari gives a sympathetic account of his life, but claims his work is old-fashioned and out-of-date. Vasari being the arbiter of style, this further hurts Piero's reputation. The French would later invade Italy, and many of his works would be destroyed. He fell into total obscurity throughout Italy and the rest of the world, except for in his home city of San Sepulcro. In the early 19th century, there was a revival of interest in Renaissance art. The English had become enamored with all things Italian. Napoleon would invade Italy and confiscate many Italian masterpieces, including some of Piero's, and bring them back to Paris. However, they would often destroy what they did not loot. These actions by the French outraged the English, but it also heightened their interest in Italian art. In 1850, an Italian linguist, Gaetano Milanesi, would open a volume of a series of ledgers for the year 1439 found in the archives of Santa Maria Nuova in Florence. This particular year was momentous because it was the year that the Greek and Latin church leaders met in Florence 
and attempted to reconcile the Catholic and the Greek Orthodox churches. But what Milanesi would find would be a bill of sale that mentioned Piero della Francesca, an unknown artist at the time. Milanesi was a linguist for sure, but he was an important figure in the Italian nationalist movement, and he was trying to piece together a history of Italian art as a point of pride for Italian nationalism. Piero had been relatively unknown outside of San Sepulcro, and Milanesi's discovery would spark a renewed interest and pride in this early Italian Renaissance artist. Almost simultaneously, a British art buyer named John Charles Robinson was scouring Florence for art to bring back to England. Robinson was the head of the South Kensington Museum, and often he would visit restored churches who were unable to sell their old artworks after the churches were remodeled in the 19th century. At times, he would pull work out of trash heaps of these renovated churches. The English had become enamored with the early Renaissance, particularly what they deemed the Pre-Raphaelite painters. Now, there was also a movement known as the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. And this helped encourage this interest, though they actually had very little to do with true early Renaissance work. They did, however, popularize Dante and brought renewed interest in the artist of the early Renaissance, prior to Raphael. Robinson sensed that war was brewing, and the tide of Italian nationalism was growing. Florence would soon break with the Austrian Empire, who controlled much of northern Italy. He wrote home that he needed to quickly leave Italy before it closed the borders and prevented the sale of art to foreigners, which would occur later in 1859. Prior to the closing of Italy's borders, Robinson was notified that a particular piece by Piero was up for sale. The church had recently completed major renovations and was in need of money. After being unable to find an Italian buyer, the church allowed foreign investors to bid on the painting. Robinson immediately wrote to the directors of the National Gallery to see if they would be interested in the piece if he was able to acquire it. They quickly notified him that they would in fact be interested and the painting we're discussing is The Baptism of Christ. Fortunately for Robinson, local art experts had priced the painting very low, thinking of no importance and little value. It was also in quite a bit of disrepair. Robinson was able to complete the purchase and send the painting on to London, along with himself, before the Italians closed the border. There's a lot more that could be written about these two individuals. and Like I said, they could probably have a podcast all their own, but we'll have to leave it here for now. Just know that they were the two that brought Piero back to prominence and allowed for us to better appreciate his work and his contribution to the early Renaissance. Even today, he's still overlooked. And if you look in many of the art textbooks, you'll find he gets barely a mention, if anything at all. I'll admit I almost skipped him myself, but I'm glad I decided to dig a little bit deeper and discovered really how important he was. This is an extremely influential artist, and I think it's important to highlight how he was the first to really develop the Renaissance style and combine all of these ideas. Plus, he's the one that helped introduce oil painting to Italy, and that's going to become very important in the High Renaissance. From this point forward, artists will fully embrace the Renaissance idea, will no longer look back to the Gothic period. And we have Piero della Francesca to thank for that. As I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, I spent some time over the last couple of weeks working on the website, and I want to direct you to some of our sponsors. So if you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to use the Amazon search bar at the upper 
right-hand corner of the renaissancepodcast.com the next time you plan on ordering from Amazon. The show gets a small percentage of every purchase, and it's an easy way for you to support the show at no extra cost. You may still make a donation, of course. Just click on the Donate tab on the page just above the Amazon search bar where you can make a secure donation through PayPal. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes so that you will receive the latest updates, and please consider writing a review. This really helps us spread the word about the show, and it gives us a little bit higher profile on iTunes so that more people can enjoy the history of Renaissance art. Join us next time as we explore the art of Fra Filippo Lippi.